Let's look at Matthew 2. Matthew chapter 2, we'll uh, look at the end of the chapter. And I'm going to, Lord willing, uh, finish Matthew 2 this morning and Luke 2. I won't quite finish, but um, there are a lot of verses in Luke. All the chapters of Luke have long, long chapters, lots of verses. Um, but we'll get near the end of Luke 2 tonight. Again, uh, hopefully, I plan to do that. But this morning, Matthew 2, and uh, we'll be looking, beginning verse 16 to the end of the chapter, and I'm going to preach to you the surprise of his birth, the surprise of his birth. Actually, there are two surprises that we find here in this passage, and I want to show you these two and, uh, and how they fit together. Now, I think that there's more than that because there's a whole chapter, and I think that the chapters kind of capture a theme here. Um, but we're just going to focus on these two. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. These are the words of God. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we open the word together, I pray that not all of us would hunger to know you more as you have revealed yourself in the pages of Scripture. I pray that we would especially desire uh, to know what you want from us, that what we see here would tell us what we ought to believe and what we ought to do as well. I pray that you would help me as I preach, that you would guide and govern me, uh, that I would be under your control in this time that I would say what I ought to say and nothing more, nothing less. And I pray that you would work through your word as preached. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. You can be seated. Our tour guide in Israel loved Herod. It was kind of odd at first because he was immediately defensive. He said, I know, I know. But he said they called him Herod the Great for a reason. And then during the whole two weeks that we were there, he would point out different things about Herod, but he kind of saved his big juicy bomb for the end. There he was building up to it the whole week. Smart guy. Uh, but he was building up to it, and at the end, he insisted that the story of Herod slaughtering the babes of Bethlehem is myth, that it's a legend invented by the disciples he didn't know why exactly or how that would, you know, help with the story. I don't know how it makes the story move along or becomes more convincing. I guess Herod was a bad guy, but we knew Herod was a bad guy. We didn't really need that story to tell us that Herod was a bad guy. Uh, he was a great king, no doubt about that. And, uh, and I just share this with you. Uh, we went underneath the uh, Western Wall. You can go down pretty deep down in there, and then they dug out. Uh, the foundations, around the foundations, and you can look down, you know, 50 feet or more. You can see down there, and you can see, you know, just uh, the most impressive bricks that you would ever see. I mean, these bricks are as big as this building, um, almost. I was probably a little bit of an exaggeration, but they are massive, massive. And hundreds of them that form the foundation of that wall. Um, that was not a small thing. Uh, it was impressive. We went up on Masada. I think I've talked about that a few times, but uh, his palace that was up on Masada, it was one of 12 palaces that he had. He was 
a great builder. And that's part of why he's called Herod the Great. But the, the palace on Masada, the ruins of it are unbelievable. And uh, the idea that he would go there, resort there, and um, the spa that he had built and all of this stuff, I mean, it's impressive. It's definitely impressive. You would be impressed, no doubt about it. He would be the kind of man that you would be impressed by and probably would be intimidated by as well. <clears throat> but our tour guide asked us if we thought it was possible that such an atrocity would be committed and Israel would not be in an uproar about it, that Herod would slaughter the babies. He's, he pointed out the Israelites, the Jews, were not excited about Herod being their king anyway. There was a lot of resistance to him. So for him to do something like that, you would expect that there would be an uprising, that the Jews were very volatile at that time as well, and uh, always on the edge of rioting. And so he's, he asked how that didn't happen. He told us that there's no record of such an uproar, uh, in fact, no record of the atrocity itself, that the only place in the world where we are told that Herod ordered the slaughter of all the babies of Bethlehem, two years old and under, and all the coasts thereof. The only place where we are told about this is in the book of Matthew. There is no other record of this that has ever been discovered. No other evidence that this happened. Is Matthew's account legendary? Isn't an example of the way the disciples tried to make more of Jesus than what he was? Well, let me answer that first by saying that I would believe what Matthew says even if there was no other confirming evidence at all. I don't need any other confirming evidence. The fact that it is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew is more than adequate, more than sufficient for me to believe it. I'll yes. just start by saying that what I find in the Word of God, I believe. Yes. Period. So we can stop there. <clears throat> Plenty of claims from Scripture have been refuted in similar ways over the years and then later found to be true. For example, scientists for many, many years denied that there were any such people as the Hittites. There was no archaeological evidence that Hittites ever existed and then lo and behold, one day they were digging in some random place and they found evidence. I don't know how they find this stuff and how they can say, yep, that was Hittites, but they have established that there was a people called the Hittites. But again, I didn't need them to discover it in order for me to believe it. I believed it because the Bible speaks of such a people, and so I know that there were such a people. <clears throat> I believe the Bible. But I also think that there are good answers to the objection that there's no empirical evidence, no outside or external evidence to confirm the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. I'll say this, Jesus was born in violent times. Jesus himself referred in Luke chapter 13, referred to the Galileans whose blood was mingled with their sacrifice. When he spoke of that, there was no one in the crowd who piped up and said, fake news. There was no, what do they call it, scopes? There was no fact checker who stepped in and said, Jesus, you believe false information. Nobody denied or refuted what he said. But there is no external record outside of Luke 13 that would make a similar claim or even explain exactly what happened. Jesus himself doesn't explain what happened 
he only refers to the event as if it were a current event or something in recent memory with no explanation whatsoever. That is not his point at all. But he refers to this thing happening. And there are many such things in the word of God. <clears throat> but Jesus' audience didn't dispute this reference. They didn't deny that it happened. Again, these were bloody times. So it isn't surprising that the murder of a dozen or so babies, which probably is what it was. Bethlehem was a small village. And in that surrounding area, um, all the coast thereof, maybe there were 20 babies. That doesn't minimize what was done, but I'm saying that most even of Israel wouldn't be highly concerned about this kind of thing. The, the news may not have traveled or even reached them, most of the nation. And it probably was done in the middle of the night and all covered over afterwards. This kind of thing does, though, fit with Herod's character, for sure. A man who would kill his own wife and sons because of a threat he thought that they posed to his kingdom would certainly not hesitate to order the slaughter of a dozen or more babies in Bethlehem. Now, I'll just point this out to you also. The only record that we have that Jesus Christ was crucified is in the Bible itself. There is no external record that Jesus Christ was crucified. And yet, it is the most historically verifiable event in the world that Jesus was crucified. But most importantly, this fits with what Matthew is telling us about the Messiah King. Jesus is such a threat to Herod that Herod will do anything to eliminate him. He has no boundaries, no, no restraint when it comes to destroying a threat, an immediate threat to his throne. He will stop at nothing. But God the Father is watching over his son. Matthew presents two surprises in this passage. One providential, one personal. The first points to God's mighty arm protecting his son. The second points to, pardon me, God's glorious purpose for his son. The first shows Jesus as the Son of God. The second shows Jesus as the Son of Man. Now, throughout these first two chapters, Matthew has been alternating between Jesus Christ, between his connection to the seed of David, his earthly father, and his connection to his heavenly father, his father, in heaven. And Matthew goes back and forth between those two. He opens his book by showing Jesus to be the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he gives us his human genealogy, the generations of Jesus Christ. But then immediately when he has concluded that, <coughs> pardon me, he then immediately shows us that though Jesus was of the lineage of David, though he was of the house of David, he was not of the seed of David because immediately Matthew tells us that Jesus was virgin born, that he had no earthly father. <clears throat> he is David's heir, but he is not David's son. He is in fact Emmanuel. God with us, the virgin's born son of God. Then in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew shows us what a threat the birth of Jesus was to the reigning tyrants of that day. In response to that threat, Herod poses an immediate threat to Jesus. 
a threat that is resolved in the rest of the chapter. And yet Matthew demonstrates that this threat was never a cause for concern. There was no dramatic, not razor-thin, knife's-edge escape on the part of Jesus and his family. But rather, God used Herod's threat against Jesus to steer Jesus, to direct him, to move him first to Egypt and then to Nazareth. And that God had an intention, a purpose in doing this. When Jesus escaped Herod's attempt on his life, God fulfilled Rachel's inconsolable weeping for her children. And when Jesus moved to Nazareth, God fulfilled the prophetic picture of a despised and rejected Messiah. By highlighting the way Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, God shows what he was doing in our world through Christ, especially as God used contrary circumstances to order and direct his son's life so that Jesus would give the fullest sense of God's promises concerning the Messiah. Matthew points out, in fact, five Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the birth and early years of Jesus Christ. The virgin birth gave the fullest sense in which God would deliver his people from their enemies by entering our world in human flesh. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem gave us the fullest sense in which the house of David would rise again after it was destroyed in the in the captivity in Babylon, the house of David would rise again to deliver Israel. Christ's sojourn in Egypt gives the fullest sense in which God calls his children out of Egypt. And now in our text, the remainder of Matthew 2, we see the last two fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy that are related to the birth and early years of Jesus Christ. First of all, the sorrow of Bethlehem's mothers gives the fullest sense of Rachel weeping for her children. Let me show you how. Jeremiah was a prophet of the captivity. Other prophets had prophesied of the captivity that was to come. Some of the prophets prophesied after Israel returned from the captivity. But Jeremiah's years span from before the captivity to the full captivity of Israel. There were, in fact, there was a first wave where um, several thousand were carried away into captivity, and then there was a full-scale destruction of Jerusalem and carrying Israel into captivity that followed. And Jeremiah was a prophet during all of that time. The prophets before him had called Israel to repentance and warned them of the consequences if they did not. Jeremiah lived those consequences. And his prophecies took on the different tone. Instead of promising chastisement for all of Israel's sins, Jeremiah prophesied that Israel would return, that God would restore the nation to their inheritance. Now this is this is an amazing thing. What God called Jeremiah to do was very offensive to the reigning authorities in Israel. Because Jeremiah called the people to submit to the captivity. The Babylonians are going to carry you into captivity. This is something that you have earned through many years of unfaithfulness and disobedience and idolatry. And you are to surrender to them and go into captivity and God will bring you back into the land. It was an incredibly unpopular message that would sound like, just like imagine in America, if there were preachers standing up and preaching capitulation to the enemy. That's what it sounded like. 
And for that, Jeremiah was cast into prison, lowered by his armholes into a pit. So it was in the midst of all of this prophesied that we come to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 focuses on this promised restoration. In verse 3 of Jeremiah 31, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. <clears throat> Again, I will build thee and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. So God is, Jeremiah is prophesying on behalf of the Lord, speaking for the Lord, thus saith the Lord, God is going to, he loves you. With an everlasting love, he is going to return you to the land. By the way, Pardon me, when the ten northern tribes were carried into captivity, they were annihilated. Not annihilated, but they were destroyed. The, the Assyrians had a, a method when they took captive a people. They moved in other Gentiles into the nation uh, so that they would intermarry. It created a um, race of Samaritans. And the ten northern tribes uh, were decimated by it. They never returned. So it was only the tribe of Judah and Benjamin who are going to return, who are promised this return. <clears throat> Jeremiah 31 promises this blessing and restoration, and then seemingly out of the blue, we have an interruption to the good news that Israel re will return. We have an interruption in the middle of Jeremiah 31, verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, not verse 16, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. So up to, I think that's verse 15, I didn't write it in my notes, but up until then, there's all this promise of God loving you with an everlasting love, and he's going to return you to Israel, to your nation, to your promised land. And then we are interrupted by Rachel weeping for her children in Ramah. The prophet follows this immediately, this disturbing word, with a word of reassurance in verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping, and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. What, what are we to make of this? So we have Jeremiah, really he's assuring and reassuring the people that you're going to return, but then in the middle of that, he interrupts it by pointing out Rachel weeping for her children in Ramah. And then we come to Matthew 2, and we are told that when Herod slaughtered the babes of Bethlehem, that that was a fulfillment. In other words, remember what we've taught about fulfillment in Matthew, that it's referring to the fullest Sense. This is the fullest sense of Rachel weeping for her children. A few chapters later in Jeremiah 34, Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem for a year and a half. When the king Zedekiah attempted to sneak out of Jerusalem, the Babylonians captured him. They executed his sons in front of his eyes. Then they put out his eyes. They burned the king's house and the houses of the people. They broke down the walls of Jerusalem and they carried into captivity the remnant of the people that remained in the city. But they left the poor of the people, which had nothing in the land of Judah, and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. 
All the prisoners were taken from Jerusalem, five miles north of Jerusalem, to Ramah. This was the rendezvous point that Jeremiah had pointed to earlier, the place where the people gathered to be taken to Babylon. This was the point of departure. All the nation, all the children of Judah, brought to Ramah, and from there they departed. The mothers of Israel wept for their children because they believed that they would never see them again. And Matthew says that this happened again, now in a fuller sense, in its fullest sense, in fact, in the time of Jesus Christ. Let's unpack this. What Herod did to the children of Bethlehem, the babies of Bethlehem, did not fulfill a prediction. Nobody predicted that he would do this. Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled within a few years of his promise. He had promised that Ramah would be the place where Rachel would weep for her children. And a few years later, it was. That was fulfilled when the Babylonians carried the children of Israel into captivity. So Jeremiah did not predict that any of this would happen in the time of Christ or even in Bethlehem. <clears throat> Let me just say this. Bethlehem is about the same distance south of Jerusalem as Ramah is north of Jerusalem. They are about 10 miles apart from each other. So clearly, Jeremiah was not predicting anything about King Herod or about Bethlehem there. So how does Jesus fulfill this prophecy? In Jeremiah's day, Israel's mothers, symbolized by Rachel, wept for their children because they thought that they would never see them again. When their children were carried into captivity, they believed that they were saying goodbye forever, that this was a living death for their children. But God had promised that their children would return and had repeated that promise. And by the way, those children did return when they were very old. They returned. Matthew means to say that Jesus relived that tragic experience from Jeremiah's day. Remember what I said, that in the life of Jesus Christ, everything that happened to Israel happened to Jesus. God intentionally took Jesus through every part of Israel's experience. Herod's slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem was that generation's Ramah. If you think of it this way, our generations, well, my generation's Pearl Harbor was 9-11. Generations have these kinds of events that take place and that we always refer back to. My grandfather never got over the emotional toll of Pearl Harbor. I find myself every September referring back to 9-11 and rehearsing and reminding myself again of the events on that day. This is the kind of thing that happens in history once in a generation you owe, that you never quite get over that becomes a reference point in history. And so I'm saying that when Herod ordered the slaughter of babies in Bethlehem, that was Jesus' generation's Ramah. That's what Matthew is saying. It's the fullest sense of Ramah. It was a tragedy that they would never forget, a pain that they could not describe and could never get over. But Matthew says that Rachel's sorrow for her children 
was now complete. Ramah, north of Jerusalem, represents Rachel's sorrow for her son, Joseph. The tribe of Ephraim, by the way, the ten northern tribes are often referred to as Ephraim. Ephraim was Joseph's heir. So Ephraim represented Joseph and the ten northern tribes. Bethlehem, which is in the tribe of Judah, represents Rachel's sorrow for her son Benjamin because initially, originally, Bethlehem was part of the tribal land of Benjamin, but then became part because Benjamin and Judah joined together. And when Herod ordered the slaughter of these babies, Rachel was called upon a second time to weep for her children, this time for Benjamin. The sorrow of the women of Bethlehem completed Rachel's weeping for her children. And now we come to the point of this particular prophecy and fulfillment. In Ramah, Israel was threatened with total annihilation at the hands of the Babylonians. And the mothers of Israel believed that their children would be destroyed, that they would be no more. Don't forget, King Zedekiah's sons were slaughtered before his very eyes, so there are no heirs to the throne of David. Zedekiah's brother Jehoiachin was carried into Babylon into captivity as a young man, unmarried, held in prison. It would seem that the royal seed of David is about to be exterminated. But at the end of Jeremiah, we're told that evil Merodach looked kindly on Jehoiachin and released him from prison. And we know that the royal seed of David carried on through Jehoiachin. The seed did not die. Now that was what happened in Jeremiah. That the promised seed, because remember, God had promised in Abraham, in thee all nations of the earth will be blessed. God had promised David that his royal seed would be the seed of the Messiah. And here they are in Jeremiah's day on the brink of extinction. But they survived. You see what God did? He, so many times he allowed the promise to come close, right on the verge of collapsing and failing. But it didn't. Israel survived the Babylonian captivity. The kingly line survived through Jehoiachin. But now we come to Matthew, and in Matthew we see that the Messiah himself is threatened with annihilation. That Herod sets out attempting to destroy Jesus, the Messiah. And Herod successfully slaughtered all the babes of Bethlehem. We're not told that any escaped except for one. And that's the surprise. <coughs> because the point is that Jesus survived. That Jesus escaped. That God did not allow his promise to fail. God wants you to know how close it came. Many times, not once, but many times. But here in Matthew, we see the fullest sense, the most direct threat to the Messiah himself. And we see God providentially preserving <coughs> his son. Out of the bowels of overwhelming sorrow and tragedy, God brought forth salvation and blessing 
the restoring and renewing of his people, Israel. But there's a second surprise in the passage, and that is this. Christ's years in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, Christ's years in Nazareth give the fullest sense of the world's scorn for the Messiah. I've explained this before several times. Most of you have heard me preach this, so I'll just give you a short, encapsulated version here. Matthew is not quoting a particular prophet in Matthew 2, verse 23. Notice what he says, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, plural, here. He is summarizing the whole of what the prophets had to say about Jesus. I think we find a good summary of their description of the Messiah in Isaiah 53. He hath no form nor come with us. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah, though, is not the only one to point this out as a feature of the Messiah himself. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 15, the Bible says prophetically, But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. Israel rejected the Messiah. In Psalm 22, in verse 6, a messianic psalm, the psalmist, speaking prophetically, says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Of course, we know that that was said while Jesus hung on the cross, the people said that about Jesus as he hung there. They despised him. They rejected him. In Psalm 69, another messianic psalm, the Bible says prophetically, because for thy sake, I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. Now again, we know that that phrase was applied to Jesus when he was crucified. Psalm 69, verse 19, Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now this is what the Bible is saying. Here, over and over, the Old Testament presents the Messiah as one the people would despise, the people would ignore, the spite, the scorn that the people would have for Jesus. And then Matthew tells us that the fullest sense of this is displayed when Jesus, because... Joseph feared to return to Bethlehem, and God sent him to Nazareth that he might be called a Nazarene. <clears throat> That's the fullest sense of the scorn and ridicule and despite that the people would show and keep on the head of Jesus Christ our Messiah. Growing up in Nazareth, Mark Jesus for scorn and ridicule just because he grew up in Nazareth. 
It gave the men of that day a very easy reason to despise him. The same way sophisticated people despise people from backwater parts of the world. It reminds me, years ago, a description that George Stephanopoulos gave of Pennsylvania. He called it uh, Pittsburgh in the west and Philadelphia in the east and Alabama in between, he said. And it's a, it's a very sophisticated way of despising the heartland of America. Because number one, Alabama is kind of synonymous with a place we despise. And then to call the <clears throat> heartland of Pennsylvania, Alabama, is a way to despise the common, unsophisticated people of America. They call it flyover country, right? It's the, it's the part of America that you have to, you know, it's inconvenient, the inconvenient distance between Los Angeles and New York City, right? And that's the way the world looks at it. The sophisticated elites of the world will always despise the down-home country heartland type of people. They always will. And that is exactly what they did with Jesus. <clears throat> now, I would just argue, there's this notion that New York City and Los Angeles and the big cities of America, that's where the sophisticated people gather. Now, I have been in a number of these big cities, and let me just tell you, if you want to find a, a very dense population of ignoramuses, go to the big cities of America. You'll find people there. You know, I remember when I, I had a ministry in Chicago for a while, there were people in Chicago who had never left their neighborhood, had never been anywhere except their own neighborhood. They had not even been to the north side of Chicago. They had never been outside of Illinois. Can you imagine never leave, like living your life and never leaving the city where you lived? That to me is not sophisticated. The word I would use would be more like imprisoned, right? But that's the way the world looks at it. Again, it's the kind of pride, intellectual pride, that characterizes man in his rebellion against God. And we see it played out in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus willingly took the stereotype on himself by identifying with the backwater hicks of Nazareth. But there's more to it than that. Because Jesus came as a common man to bring salvation to the common man. The elites of Israel despised him. The, the way so-called elites of our world despise us. That must have made it so much more painful for them when Jesus consistently, repeatedly embarrassed them, humiliated them, exposed them in his day. Jesus, you know, wasn't one of them. That's the point of him being called a Nazarene. He's not one of them. He's not a religious authority. He is not a scribe, a chief priest, a Pharisee, a Sadducee. He's not from the upper crust at all. He didn't go to their schools, and he didn't go to them seeking approval for his ministry. In fact, when Jesus launched his ministry, he went to John the Baptist, the guy who wore, what, the camel hair, ate locusts and wild honey, and lived like a wild man in the wilderness. He went to him, not to the Pharisees. 
And when he came to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he didn't bow to them. He didn't pander to them. He didn't applaud them. He didn't speak of them with reverence. In fact, he spoke very irreverently to them. When you read the Gospels, especially Matthew, you get the distinct impression that Jesus was on a mission to destroy their reputation. How that must have stung that a guy from Nazareth would be so effective in refuting them. He exposed them as spiritual frauds. They may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. He described them with devastating clarity. They whitewashed the sepulcher and left it full of bones. They swallowed a few widows' houses and then prayed a long prayer in the synagogue to reassure everyone of their good reputation. He described the way they would hold back money that they should have used to provide for their parents in their old age. But they would claim that they had dedicated it to the Lord so they couldn't use it to help their parents. He described the scrupulous way that they would measure out the herbs from their garden and tithe on those herbs, while, meanwhile, rejecting the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice. He ridiculed their gnat straining. They tried to trip him up, but they couldn't do it. Should have been easy for a Nazarene, right? To trip up a Nazarene, a rube, right? A country bumpkin. It ought to be easy for such sophisticated people as the Pharisees to trip him up. But they could not. <clears throat> and in turn, Jesus trashed their fine reputation so well that the term Pharisee today is a term of derision instead of a term of honor as it was in Christ's day. And when he spoke, he spoke with authority and not as the scribes. The religious authorities found themselves baffled at his level of understanding of scriptures. John 7, 15 says, And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Isn't that interesting? Clearly he had learned. Just that he had not learned from them. And you could tell he had not learned from them. He had a heart. Unlike them. The very officers who serve the chief priests, who rub shoulders with the chief priests every day, recognize the genius of Jesus Christ. In John 7, verse 46, the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. And add insult to injury as hard as they tried, they could find no fault in him. So, what is the point of all this? God surprises us twice in this passage. First, by causing the babies of Bethlehem to be slaughtered, but one baby to escape. And that baby would bring salvation to the world. And then, God surprises us by sending that baby to Bethlehem so that men will despise him and reject him merely because he is from Nazareth. Nathaniel, remember what he said? Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? You remember what the Pharisees said to, uh, to Nicodemus? Search and look for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Why? Because God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness 
and sanctification and redemption that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. This is God's message here. This is what God is saying. That when God entered our world, he did not enter as an alpha male. He did not, he was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. God did not give him all the advantages that life could offer at that time. God did not give him a high reputation in the world he entered. God, in fact, stripped away from his son every advantage, everything that could possibly make him rely on something outside of God himself. He made himself of no reputation, the Bible says, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the cross, unto death, even the death of the cross. And God displayed his power in this. That's the surprise. God brought salvation to the world through Jesus of Nazareth. Don't, don't think that Pilate wasn't pointing this out when he ordered the sign to be put over the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That was a dig at the Jews. Here's your king, I'm crucifying him. He's the Nazarene. But that's the surprise. In bringing salvation to the world, God made himself the weakest of us, the most despised of us. He displayed his power in this. He didn't have to be the greatest. He didn't have to be the mightiest. He didn't have to be the most respected. He didn't have to be the born leader. He brought salvation to the world as the weakest, most vulnerable, most despised of all men. And God is telling you and me that he has more power in his pinky finger to save us than the devil has in his entire arsenal to destroy us. Our God is a mighty Savior. If you're here without Christ, then you must lay down arms against him and fall at his feet and surrender to him and confess your sins and cry out for mercy and for pardon. Call upon him. Receive him as your Savior and Lord. Do that. And Jesus lowered himself so that he might raise us up. 